morning, my loves. My name's Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> you know, uh, when I get back to Canada, I'll have driven 4,000 miles. Uh, I haven't had a holiday in about three years, and I thought, I'm going to take a few days and see something of America, take my time getting down there, take my time getting home, because this is a magnificent country. I've seen a great deal of it at these conventions, flying here and flying there, and, but I, I haven't really seen a lot of it. I've seen quite a lot of Texas, and this is, this is, this has got to be the last bastion of communism. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I love you, I really do. You're wild, you know. You really are, you're way out there. Now, I've, I've got a lot of mileage on my mouth. Uh, from speaking, and I went through all the stages of coming up and telling everybody how good I was, and Akron in 74, I was like Bill last night, I listened to that tape, and it's atrocious, the Founders Day Convention. But over the years, I've realized, and I've become very aware, to share my experience, strengths, and hopes with you. But I think it's very important that in some way I tell you just how good you are. Because until somebody told us we were good, we were all right, we were screwed up. It took somebody that had gone through this pain to help us with our pain. You can't give away something you haven't got. Now, you know from the last few words I've said that I'm not a Canadian, I'm a Lyman. And all I can say to Bill last night is that we invented the language, we can't help what the hell you've done with it. Uh, I was born in a little mining town in England in a little place in the Midlands called Welbeck. And I was born illegitimately, I had no say in this, you know. And the story, uh, I, I live with my grandmother and my grandfather and 13 other kids. Uh, I was born in 1925, which makes me 62 this year. And uh, I, I was born in, in, in poverty. You know, 13 kids in the coal mines and a big job for my granddad to feed this family. And you know, the reason that my grandmother had 13 kids was she was a bit deaf. And my, my grandfather used to say to her, Mary Ann, do you want to go to sleep or what? And she'd say what, and that's how she had 13 kids. So, But I grew up in this family, and I thought I was the youngest kid. You know, when my mother had me, and I lived in this little Baptist town in Welbeck, but when my mother had me, my grandfather, my grandmother, threw her out. They said, you've brought disgrace on us, get out, we don't, but they kept me. You know, 62 years ago in England, if a woman had two illegitimate children, she could be put away for life. Facts. 
You know, if they did that today, you'd wonder where the hell everybody went, wouldn't you? But... <laughs> hey, don't laugh too long. This guy's going to give me five minutes and I've got a lot to say. So I grew up and at night I used to go out when it got dark around six or seven o'clock at night and I used to go to all the neighborhood farms and I used to steal from the farms. I used to steal carrots and turnips and being the smallest child I used to crawl through these little holes in the chicken coops and steal the chicken eggs and things like that and bring them home and leave them outside the door. So I was helping to provide even when I was a little boy uh, about four or five. See, for anybody that's new here, like that young man, he's a fine young man, uh, that was told me, we met out, out, out by the boats there, by the fishing boats, and he told me he's three days sober. What a lovely young man this is. And I learned a lot from him. He was telling me about the fish and the things, and, you know, and he's going to be all right. He's going to be all right. And I knew he was in pain, and he still is, and there's a lot of pain, and pain's a fact of life. You know, we learn how to live with this. But as I say, some of you are having problems with your kids. Some of you may be going through separation or divorce. Some of you are old and some of you are sick. So I'm not here to tell you how good I am at all. Believe me with all my heart. I just want to share with you. Now, when I was about five, my grandmother and grandfather told me that I was going to have to go to London, and I didn't know what this meant. See, we never had cars in those days. I think the doctor had one in this little village, and that was about it. And it didn't really mean much to me, but this very lovely lady came down, this elderly man, in a car, and, and I had to go back to London with him. And I, I was frightened. I lived right opposite, right opposite Sherwood Forest, where, where Robin Hood was supposed to have been. I used to play in there as a little boy. And I didn't want to leave this big family with the, with all this safety and, and the love that was there, even though we had nothing. And when I got to London, I had everything. You see, my stepfather had a very good position. He was the manager, general manager of a big company in London, and I had everything that a little boy would want. I got the roller skates and the cricket bats and the bicycles and the football. I got everything. I had my own bedroom, my own tall boy wardrobe, my own clothes and just what, but I was a very unhappy, mixed up kid. Now, before I left well back in Nottingham, you see, my grandfather had given me an air, a haircut. And the way they did it, they put a bowl on your head and they sheared up the sides. You know, you look, they left you a piece in the front and you look like a coconut. <laughs> and the style's right back in now, over there, you know, the cycle. And when I got to London, I had this North Country dialect. And if you haven't heard it, it sounds something like this, you see. And when I arrived in London with this North Country dialect, you know, all these little cockney kids used to come up and they'd say, Oi, mate, let's hear you say something. Go on. <laughs> and then this coconut there, I'd say, What do you want me to say? <laughs> you know, it sounded like Stan Laurel, you know. What do you want me to and they'd all laugh and they'd say, go on, say that again what you just said, you know. <laughs> and you know what I discovered? I was sensitive. <laughs> you know, alcoholics are sensitive. They're sickening. <laughs> hey, hey, are you wise? Isn't it sickening? 
If you don't believe it, tell the guy next to you or the girl that you don't like his shirt or a blouse and they'll never speak to you again. But I didn't want to be laughed at and we don't, do we? We want to be loved. We want more love than anybody can ever give us. We demand it sometimes. So I started to talk like all the other kids. You know, environment. And environment's important. We're sober today by the grace of God and the environment we're in. And when somebody has a slip, a relapse, a slip, something you do in the snow. You know, you have a slip. You know, and if you fall down in the snow, you don't wait till spring to get up, do you? You brush yourself up. You know, you have, you have a relapse. A mental relapse. You go farming again. And you ask him why, he says, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Did you go to any meeting now while I stopped going, you know, I didn't like him down there. I didn't like him, you know. Stopped going, I got bored. And I just didn't like, you know. I'm not responsible for that guy, I'm responsible to carry the message the best way I can. In my 12-step work, I'm 20 years sober. And I still get my answers from the AA service and I still go out like I was taught, whether it's one or two in the morning and I'm cursing the guy and I'm swearing at him and I'm going. That's the way I was taught. You know? So I grew up in this environment. And just when I developed a real cockney accent living in the east end of London, in Upton Park, West Ham, about three miles from where Tony lived, actually. Strange, isn't it? Small world. Uh, my parents decided they were going to send me to a private school. I was going to have all the opportunities that I would never have if I'd lived with my grandmother and grandfather, so they thought. Now, I went out to this private school in Harlow in Essex, and, and I had the little blazer and the little shorts and the little shirt. Everything was little. You know, I was about eight. And when I got there, I got another shock. Because, you remember, I had this Cockney accent, right? And I'm getting up there with my case and things, and all these prefects are lined up, and I says, Oi, mate, where am I supposed to put all this bleeding gear? And one of them said, Shut your mouth, you little gutter snipe. <laughs> yeah. And I was ten, sit uh, And you know, I'm now in a different environment. And because I'm in this different environment, and because they're, they're teaching me, they're giving me elocution lessons. You know, like my, like my fair lady, Pygmalion, you know, they're saying, uh, they're writing things on the board for me, and saying, Cole, stand up, read that. And I'm sensitive, you know, and I'm saying... Harry hit him on the head with a oh Debbie Hammer and it hurt him and all the class are laughing and I'm looking round the one that's laughing the loudest is going to get it when we get outside because I'm now building up anger but you know after a year or two I was very you know with them and lovely and all I mean I mean, you've heard those people that come over here surely and, and they tell you how marvellous it was over there and you wonder what the hell they're doing here uh, it's very, hey, hey, the time. <laughs> you 
Yeah. It's very easy to do. All you've got to do is put a half French fry in your mouth and you've got it. <laughs> now, a very dramatic thing happened at this time. Dramatic. And I think this happens to all of us. I believe this. I believe this. And keep an open mind. I think, as children, most of us are screwed up. I think so. And about this time, one day, the matron came and she said, Cole, you have a visitor. And I went to the front, there's this lovely car, and there's this man, and we go out. Remember very clearly, Bishop Stalford, and on the way back, had a lovely day with him. On the way back, he told me he was my Uncle Bill. And he said, I'll come and see you again, Billy. And I said, fine, Uncle Bill. And a month or two later, he came again, and we went out to Epping, and I remember he wasn't feeling very well, and we, we had a lovely day. We communicated. We communicated. We communicated. In the big, big book, in the Bible, where so much of our big book comes from, from St. James, Corinthians, so much of our big book, you know. Sermon on the Mount. It says, in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was God. Communication. Wherever two or three are gathered together in my name. Beautiful, you know. You can communicate better with a suffering alcoholic than anybody on the face of this earth. Because you cannot give away something you haven't got. And when you've been, you know, if you have a pain, a toothache, you want a dentist, don't you? My loves, you're the dentist on the next call you go on. You're going to solve that guy's pain. You're the dentist. I'm sure he's unlovable. Were you lovable when you had toothache? Hey, you want to say, I've got toothache, let's go and play charades. You know, I mean, you're in pain, and it, and there. And you are his dentist. And remember when you got that 12th of you say, I'm this guy's dentist. I'm going to help take away that pain. Okay? Simply. And on the way home that day, he told me he was my father. And I said, you're my father? He said, yes, Billy. He said, I said, well, you know, I've got this mess. He said, that's your stepfather, Billy. I said, well, you know, I said, when I was in Wellback, he said, that's your grandmother and your grandfather, Billy, but I'm your father, and I love you. And I was pleased. I, I really was. Because I felt that my stepfather wasn't my father. We didn't communicate. Only a little boy and mixed up and didn't know, and nobody was honest with me. And he said, I'm your dad, Bill, and I'll come and see you again. And I said... Great. He said, but don't let's tell anybody. I said, no, Dad. And you know, he never came back. And I sat by the little church at Harlow College for hours upon hours upon hours upon days looking out at that driveway that every car that pulled up, looking for him. Looking for him, and he never came back. And that, I believe, was the fork in the road when I said, I'm no good. I'm no good. I'm a sore. I'm no good. Nobody wants me. My grandmother and grandfather, my, my stepfather, my mother, they send me, nobody wants me. You know? Low esteem, inferiority complex. And then the lies, and then the lies, lying about my father being a, a pilot and dying and lying and lying and lying. And fantasy land, and the abnormal became the normal. The abnormal became the normal. I was screwed up. 
My marks deteriorated, I started stealing, I got expelled from this school, the first guy in 200 years. And I got home and I got into trouble and I got into trouble and when I was 13 and a half I was sent to a reformatory. And I went to a reformatory where they believed if they worked you real hard and they beat you real good, you'd turn into something good. And I, I did, I turned into a hell of a good fighter. You know? I came out of there when I was about 14 and a half and started work as an apprentice toolmaker in Dagnum in Essex. And I worked there for about 18 months or two years. I was 16 and a half, 1941, and I went down and joined the Navy. And I went down and joined the Navy as a tradesman, as a machinist, as a fitter and turner. Wasn't stupid, I was just screwed up. We're not stupid, alcoholics are better with it. Screwed up. 95% of all the problems we have are because we are not dealing with reality the way things really are. That's when we get this depression and these fits of depression and this stuff. We do not see things the way they really are. How life is treating us. And life does treat us. It brings us all kinds of things. Sickness, illness, divorces, death, all this. It's testing you. It's testing you. And it's going to go on testing you. Because none of us are immortal. It's going to go on. And I got in the Navy and I didn't get into too much trouble in the Navy because there's no back doors on ships. You know. In 1947 I was welterweight champion of the British Navy and I'm proud of this. I came out of the Navy, I turned professional and I started to box around London where Tony comes from. And I started to do very well. Ted Kid Lewis, the former world welterweight champion, was my manager. And I started to win fights and I enjoyed this. It was what I was good at. I had enough hatred inside me, you know, rather fight than eat. And because of being in this environment, I was to meet two or three fellows that I liked very much. And they used to come to the house and pick me up in beautiful cars. And they wore these Savile Row suits and teddy bear coats and sets and hats. And that's beautifully dressed. And I, I wanted to be like them. And they were thieves. And that was all right. I fitted in real good. See, water finds its own level. You can judge a man by the company he keeps. The bums mix with the bums. We say stick with the winners. Hang in there, kid. Stick through. Hang in. Stick with the winners. You become a winner. It can't fail. Cannot fail. Cannot fail. As sure as night follows day. And one night we were coming back from Bellevue in Manchester... And the guys were talking about a job they were going to do, and they said, Bill, do you want to earn some real money? And I said, yes. See, like I say, I didn't have a mind of my own. I wasn't taught to think. We weren't taught to think responsible. Most of us. Keep an open mind. A big problem. Jesus, throw me for a loop. And I said, yeah, and they told me about this job they were going to do at this warehouse in London. I went along with them. As a result of this, I was to get caught. Uh, uh, there was some violence with the police, and, and I was to go to penitentiary. I'm not proud of that, but like I say, I haven't come forth as much to tell you anything other than the way it is. And, you know, it's funny today because I, I visit a lot of penitentiaries. I'm in big demand at the penitentiaries. <laughs> but, you see, I talk on their level. It's a different talk. 
And the most I can do is hope to bring them out of this environment for an hour. And I tell a lot of funny incidents in the English prisons. And I kid them. And I give it to them. And I say, if I can do it, you can do it, so don't give me any crap. Didn't you think, if these guys can do it, I can do it? These girls can do it, I can do it? One day at a time? I tell them about, you know, you guys have got libraries and television sets and baseball diamonds. You know, if, I, if I'd have been here, I'd have never wanted to leave. You know. You know, I was locked up for 23 and a half hours a day, one man in one cell, sewing mailbags. I know what it is to be lonely. I know what it is to be hurt. I know what it is to be hungry. Tell me about it. I told them we used to get one book a week and I had no choice in this. You go out on exercise and you work in a, walk in a big circle about six foot away from each other. And while you're out on exercise, a trustee puts the book in yourself. And you come back and you look at that because that is a big deal. I know more things about things I can't make a buck at I used to read and reread and read. I had a book one time, The Life of a Tetsy Fly. And you know, when you're incarcerated, you know, you look down the index and it says the sex life and being a good alky in the making, that's the first page you turn to. And some filthy swine's torn that page out. You know, whatever turns you on. I'd been in there about two years in strange ways in Manchester. I'd been to another prison called Wormwood Scrubs and escaped from there, got caught to Cardiff and sent to strange ways. And they have some strange ways there. 24 days, bread and water. Punishment diet number one. That'll straighten him out. No, it just, you're laying there and you're going to get even with every son of a bitch that ever lived. what you're going to do you're filled with hatred and I remember one Christmas day I'd been in there about 18 months it was Christmas day and I'm like we're all locked up Christmas day and I hear the keys going because you learn to know everything there time time is a different time you talk so many fish dinners so many you know different 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 deal and I hear the doors going and my door opens and there's the governor Mr. Harvey and there's the chief officer and the principal officer and I'm standing by the door and he says, step back, Cole. And I step back. With this lousy Christmas dinner that I've got. And you know what he said to me? He said, you're a good man, Cole. He said, you're a good man. He said, you really are. I've watched it. He said, you're, you're made of good stuff. He said, with your naval record, son... How did you ever finish up in here? I said, I don't know, sir. He said, you're a good man. And he closed the door, and I, I sat down on my seat in that stool built in the wall, and I cried my eyes out. Nobody had ever told me that I was a good man. Nobody had ever told me I was a good boy. And you parents, when you go home today, you tell your kids they're good. When they do something, praise them. Say, that's terrific, love. Gee, did you draw that? You can't see it. You know, is it a dog or what is it? It's great. You know, and they respond to this. If you tell a kid he's good, he's great, he's wonderful, he's lovable, he'll be good and great and positive proof. 
But if you tell him it's stupid, which we're apt to do, when we're drinking, the phone goes, you say, if that's for me, tell them I'm not here. Knock at the door, if that's for me, I'm not here. And you wonder why the kid's lying. You know, you say, I've told that kid 1,500 billion times to stop exaggerating. I don't know where he gets it from. You're a good man. If you dig a hole for him, if you say, that was a stupid thing you did, you're stupid. Why do you do that stupid thing? And you tell him 5,000 times, the kid's stupid. You dig a hole for him, he'll fall in it. If you build a pedestal for him, he'll climb up on it and he'll stay there. Believe me, I know this, I work with kids. I work with screwed up kids. I'm their man. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, their, I'm their guy. I'm their guy. I know what's going through the rotten little minds. I, I, I only kidding. Takes one to know one. Like I say, I lived in fantasy land. Usually when I'm in America, I tell this story, you know. I came out of there, uh, got a pardon for something that happened, uh, holding up a mugger in London. Yeah. Yeah. Got a pardon and came to Canada. And I love Canada and I love America. And if there's nothing I say this morning that makes any sense, you can say, thank God, I live in America. When you walk out the door, say, thank God, because there are millions and millions and millions that would swim across the ocean to get in this country. And you're born here. You're lucky. Starving to death. Starving to death. Nobody cares. Some, some do. The young kids care. The young ones. They care. They're not so cynical as those old bastards. Got more loving them somehow. And excuse my language. Excuse my language. I lived in fantasy land, you know. I worked for a Swedish steel company and became a, an engineer with them. Hamvik, Swedish steel company. I left that company and I was the agricultural manager uh, of an American steel company in Midland, Pennsylvania. I told this story about two months ago in, 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 Middle, in, in Pittsburgh. I was down in Pittsburgh and I, I told him this story. I related it to him. I said, I lived in Fantasyland. Now, a fellow called Ben Jones one night dropped me off at the Biltmore Hotel and he said, I'll see you in the morning, Bill. That's where I was staying. I said, okay, Ben. And off he went and I walked in the bar. I'm drinking pretty good now. I didn't start drinking till I was 26, so I can't blame, you know. And I'm sitting in the bar and so you Americans are very friendly, you know. There's a guy a couple of seats away from me and he said, uh, because I, you know, I put on a performance, eh? Did you ever tell lies when you were drinking? I said, could I have a dry martini, old boy, and don't bruise it, whatever the hell that meant. You know, I heard Errol Flynn say it or something. It sounded good. It sounded sick, you know. And an American a couple of seats away from me said, uh, you're from England, aren't you? I said, yes. He said, I'm pleased to meet you. He said, I'm so-and-so. I'm an attorney in town. I said, oh, are you? I said, I'm Dr. Cole. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I, I didn't have low esteem in Fiori Complex. I figured if he's going to be an attorney, I'll be a doctor. We'll play that game tonight. Oh? Yeah. I'm Dr. Cole. He said, doctor, we got talking there, you know, about the war and things. He said, listen, doctor, he said, are you doing anything this evening? And I looked at him because you never know, do you? You, you know, uh... <laughs> 
Then he seemed like a nice eye. I said, what, what, what have you got in mind? You know, he said, well, there's a few of us having dinner tonight. Would you care to join us? I said, I'd love to. So I went up to my room and I had a shower and I put a dark suit, white shirt, scratch. I Dr. Cole, we're playing that game tonight. And I carried a Mickey, a fizz, you know, and I had a couple of belts. You know, and I mean, I, I drank like a pig, you know. Want to get in the mood. Did you ever do that? I got the mood. The time you're in, by the time everybody else is in the mood, you pass out. I'm getting in the mood. You know. And I presented the body down there, and lovely people. The foremost lawyers in Allegheny County, and the guest speaker that night was Robert F. Kennedy. And he was talking about the bail system as it applied in, in, in Allegheny County as Attorney General. And I sat where that lady is there, and, and he was here, and the round table, and the wine's going, and we're all drinking, and, and everybody got a copy of his speech. And afterwards, they gave him a standing ovation. I walked round, the police were at the end of the table, the chief of police, Chester. I remember his name. Gunsmoke. Chester. It just came to me, I couldn't think Chester, yeah. And I worked out, and the FBI, or see how where they are, I said, excuse me, and they got out of the way. And I came up, and Robert F. Kennedy was shaking hands with somebody, and I came up and I said, Hey, Bob, you got a minute? And he turned round, and he was a little irk. He said, I beg your pardon, sir. Who are you? I said, I'm Dr. Cole. He said, oh, he said, you're from England, eh? I said, yes, uh, yes, Mr. Kennedy. And we talked for a minute, and I made him laugh about something. He said, you're stupid, you know. And I said, uh, uh, Mr. Kennedy, I said, would you be kind enough to sign this copy of your speech as a memento of this auspicious occasion, you know? And I put it there, and I gave him the pen, and I said, and would you write best wishes, Dr. Cole Robert Ershaw? He's been offered a lot of money for this thing. Still have frames. A memento. It wasn't all set. Which I came down, thank you very much, got the ladies copy that I, incidentally, I'd been sat next to an elderly lady. Now, age is well, you know, if you're 50, somebody 80's old. If you're 80, 100's old. You know, it's just numbers. But I was about 39, and this lady was about 69. And I sat next to her, and I got her copy signed too. Best wishes, Robert F. And I came down, and I gave her the copy, and she said, and, and the fellow that had invited me, this attorney, he said, Doctor, he said, I had no idea you knew Mr. Kennedy. <laughs> and I said, I don't want to go into that now. Are we going up to the panorama? And, and cunning, baffling, and powerful. And we're up in this little room with this three-piece orchestra, and I'm hot-spotting and waltzing and quick-stepping all over the joint. And this elderly lady, I said to her, I said, Listen, love, I said, would you like to come down and see my etchings? She said, yes. And I'm down there in the room struggling with her, you know, Jesus. <laughs> and the door opened and she took off down the hall like Jesse Owens. I put about ten years on her life. The adrenaline was pumping and a Jesus, you know. The next night I come back to the big, going up to the reception, any messages for me? No, no, Miss Cole. Oh, yeah, there, there is one, yeah. And it says, the limousine will pick you up at 7 o'clock. Oh, that is. Then I got up to my room and I had a couple of belts to get the mood, you know. And I presented the body at 7 o'clock and this limousine pulls up and they drive me across Pittsburgh and I, oh, what's going on here? Bit scared. Always scared. When you're scared, it's because you're not dealing with reality.
always scared. And I said to the chauffeur, I said, excuse me, where are we going? He said, this so-and-so hall. I said, oh, okay. And when we get there, I get out and, geez, I go in there, beautiful place. And this elderly lady's there and she said, it's so good of you to come, doctor, to speak for us at such short notice. This was the alma mater of Vassar University. They had a meeting every three months. The speaker couldn't come and I was it. But I had a couple of belts to get in the mood, you know. And we were having a nice little dinner there with everything. Beautiful, the waiters in livery and everything. And, and I'm getting in the old wine. And, you know, I'm up there and I'm thinking, mind's waste, what am I going to speak about? I know what to speak about. Speak about 15 minutes. I get up on the podium and there's a board there and there's a, there's a little pointer and I've got some chalk and I've got my story ready. I said, good evening, ladies. I'm Dr. Cole from England, London. I'd like to talk to you tonight about the heart valve we're working on. I don't know, I think this was before pacemakers. And I drew a circle on the board. Always start off with a circle. Hey, you, you Texans know that. Call a circle, eh? Drew a circle, drew a couple of lines from it, and I told them, I said, uh, you know, the strength of a current that flows between two points of a current is directly proportional to the potential difference in inversely so. Now, we have a nickel chrome molybdenum with a Brinell hardness and a Rockwell hardness, and I talked for 20 minutes, and they gave me a standing ovation. Crazy. Just crazy. These were the highlights, eh? I met Crown Prince Patel with my president. I'm now working for, for Gersta Steele, the manager. I met Crown Prince Patel once. Invited to a dinner. President invited me. President of SKF. President of Dorma. President of They're all there with the statues, you know. And I was getting the suite ready on Saturday morning for our, our company. And I had a couple of belts of aquavirus Swedish drink, never went home. And seven o'clock that night again, presented the body, they're all lined up, meeting Crown Prince Patel, and I go down there, and I get up on the, I see all the, the presidents there with the statues on, you know, look like a whiskey advertisement, you've seen them. All the little medals, I don't know where they got them from, they're neutral in the last war, but they got them there anyway. And I get up on the podium, and I shake hands with Crown Prince Patel, and I'm drunk. And I won't let go of his hand. I said, you're a drone. How you say drone? I said, a drone is a not productive bee that screws around with the queen bee. I sounded like some communist, you know. And, and those worker bees and the rest, and the Swedish ambassador and the governor general came up to lead me off. And I hit the Swedish ambassador. Oh, yeah. And I hit the Governor General one, and I took my coat up. I said, up here, you Vikings. Come on. And, and I had trouble with step two. <laughs> and you know, these Swedes have no sense of humor. They fired me. I told this story in Minnesota, and a guy... And you know, from that, things started to happen. I lost everything. I lost my wife. I lost my family. I lost everything. I never got my wife. I got my kids back. I love them. They, they bug the hell out of me. 
they come round and they're there and dad this and dad this and dad and I'm glad to see them go. Bye. Bye, Ashley. Bye-bye, Dad. Bye-bye, Bob. She's quiet. But things, the progression of alcohol in six months, I was living on Skid Row in Toronto and working as a bouncer at the Blue Orchid. Doesn't take long. Doesn't take long. Arrested for assault. One night I came back about two o'clock in the morning from the Blue Orchid and I'm sick. I'm, I'm drinking cheap wine at this time to get the distance, you know. And I'm living in a room, I'm paying a buck for a night. And one night I was really sick and I came into this little room that was smaller than the cell I'd lived in in Strangeways. And I knelt down and I said, God, you say suffer little children to come unto me. Come on, what's wrong? What's wrong with me? Come on, God, I need you. Best kind of prayer. Right from the heart. I said, come on, I need you. I don't know what's wrong. I'd gone in the bar all my life as a little boy when I went to this little Baptist and I used to be the welterweight champion. Look at you. Oh, you know, back in the room and crying and frustrated and angry and in pain. I needed a dentist. I needed someone that could fix it. And it was you. Nobody else. You. A guy, you know, I phoned AA. The next morning, lady that was to become my wife came over and she's a teacher and she teaches retarded children and that was a big plus for me I'll tell you <laughs> boy and we weren't married then she told me about AA told me about Alcoholics Anonymous lovely beautiful woman lovely beautiful loving woman Christian in every sense of the word from the little island of Bermuda I'd divorced and she had two children, Stephen and Rochelle. And I loved them. They, they filled the place of my kids I never saw. They were in New Zealand. She said, phone AA, Bill. They help people like you. I said, aren't they some kind of religious outfit? Holy rollers, opinionated, prejudiced, prejudged. That's what prejudice is. It's prejudging people before you know what they're like. But I phoned and, I, and a guy came out to see me, Bill Burton, and he saved my life. He knew I was in pain and he was my dentist and he took me to a meeting. And I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I was too handsome to be an alcoholic. Yes, <laughs> you know. Ego, lies, regulatory, everything. It's people that are in pain. All caused through pain. Because when we get rid of these pains... And we start to love ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with this, you know. I love me. I love my God. Not in a selfish kind of way like I used to. But if you don't love yourself, you cannot love anybody else. And the more you love yourself, the more this will overflow on the people that surround you. Without a shadow of a doubt. And we see them come in hateful, angry, frustrated, in pain. And we're there then. We, we know we know and things started to get better as they do we came we came to and we came to believe in a power greater than ourselves and, and, and like all I, I wanted to be the very best AA there was I'm competitive I want to be the best I always wanted to be the best at something 
I want to be, you know, before I came down here this morning, I sat by the, knelt by the toilet in my bathroom and I said, please God, make me good. Not for Bill, for you. Dad, I love you and I want to be really good for you. I really want to carry the message for you this morning, Dad. Gee, I, I feel great. Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. Corpus Christi. I want to be really, really good for you. I want to be loving. I want to be fun because we finished crying. We, we, you know, we finished that. Oh, sure, we're going to get paid. We can handle that. One day at a time. After I'd been sober a few years and your mind starts to clear, I started to go, a guy, Bill Burton, the guy that told me, said, you want to come on a retreat? I'd heard about it. I said, it's Catholic, isn't it? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, well, I'm a Church of England, you know. I hadn't been in 25, I'm Church of England, you know. Prejudging. Judging before you know. He said, I think you should go, Bill. I said, okay, and I went. Got a sponsor, went. Oh, what a revelation. Father Bill, an alcoholic. I learned to love this man. He's dead now. He was, he was beautiful. Father Bill. He was an alky, 19 years sober, right? About seven or eight years in. And I'd gone there, I'd done my four steps on, and get all this crap of corrupt and life out of me. Books and pencils and everything. I went out there this Friday night. I want to share this with you. And you know, Father Bill come out. He said, good evening, my dear men. He said, uh, some of you are going to be looking at the fourth step. And I sat up because I said my prayers. Please, God, help me with the fourth step. He said, I'll tell you how I took it. You can't give away something you haven't got. I'll tell you how I took it. And I'm listening because this is a direct message from God. There's Bill, this beautiful man. He said, I made a film of my life that I wanted to show all my family. And I thought, oh my God. Oh my God. You know? Because we, we were always a step ahead. We were not always listening. Eh? We were always thinking what we're going to say. Oh my God. He said, but what I did was, I made the film and then I cut the little bits out that I didn't want them to see and I put them in the box. I edited the film, cut a little bit out and I started stealing food, you know, stealing from cars, stealing this, stealing this. Oh, gee, gee, those scissors were going, I'll tell you. Back in my little room. Snip, 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 snip. Not, not much film there, you know. Well, I left. Hell of a pile of garbage in this box. All the garbage that brought me to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was all there in that box. The phoniness, the corruption, the lies, the deceit. All in this box. You know. He said, and what I did, I ran the film and it was good. And it showed me. And I, I made good for helping to feed my family as a little boy. When I was welterweight champion of the Navy. When I was worked as a machine. When I was in the war. These, these were good things. When I held this mugger up, and so on and so on and so on. There were good, some good things there. Not all bad. A lot of bad things. And that's when I saw my sponsor and sat down with him, and I poured my heart out to this guy in a knot. I thought, he's going to hate me. But I picked a good guy. And he told me about when he used to go in these toilets and hit guys over the head and take the wallets off them. I said, you did that race, and you have done Beautiful businessman, you know. 
beautiful, beautiful, beautiful child of God, this man. Beautiful child of God. I said, you did that. And he shared with me. See, we share. That's the answer. And I felt on a cloud for months. <coughs> After I'd taken that fifth step, geez, I, I just forever, my whole life changed. And I'm seven, eight years in the program. Whole life changed. Nothing in this world could ever hurt me again. Ever. Because I was God's child. And I'm nothing up here on my own. But I'm mighty powerful with God, I'll tell you. I'm mighty powerful with God. I couldn't be here this morning if, I, if, if God wasn't inside me, filling me up. I learned about the apostles from Father. I knew nothing about had a Bible in my cell for three years and never opened it. Except to tear a page out to roll a cigarette. Terrible, eh? I learned from Father Bill. He told me about the uh, apostles. You know, these hard-working guys. Carpenters, fishermen, tent makers, stonemasons. They had hard, hard corns on the hand these guys working, pulling those nets in. I never knew that. Simple people. Most of them couldn't read or write. But Jesus knew who he wanted. If he'd have got 12 PhDs, they'd have still been arguing about what he meant. You know? He knew who he wanted. Oh, he told me about David that wrote the Psalms that jumped in the bed with Bathsheba. Sent her husband to the front knowing he'd get killed. He told me about Moses that killed a man. Tell me, he made me feel good. He took away the pain. He says, you go back and I spoke with that North Country dialect, you know. Wore me clogs. We used to say the Lord's Prayer. When I was at Harlow and I had to go to church on Sunday, lovely little church, and I'd say the Lord's Prayer. And when I was in the Royal Navy and we had divisions, Sunday morning, divisions on deck there, and we'd sing, usually Eternal Father, Strong to Save, Amazing Grace, we used to sing these songs on the ships. And we'd say the Lord's Prayer, and it never meant anything to me, just something. It does today. It does today, because it's the perfect prayer. I was in London speaking one time, and I was talking like this, and, and geez, I started getting yelling from the back, you know. Well, we didn't come out of that crap about Jesus. I'll punch you. Terrible. And a bunch of guys got up that were criminals in the program, you know, scars and that. And one of them got up and said, Shut up, you guys. <laughs> and, I, and with that, another dozen stood up and they said, Yeah. We're, we came here to see this guy. We didn't come here to see you bums. Thank God. Gee, oh. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a lover. I'm not a fighter anymore. I don't know. About six months later, I got the best letter I've ever got in my life. I got a letter from Dave Shanks in Stratford, a good friend of mine in AA. He said, Bill, as a result of you being over there, he said, they're now saying the Lord's Prayer at a lot of the meetings in the East End of London. Thanks, Bill. The greatest thing I've ever done, my love. The greatest thing that I've ever been able to carry the message. That meeting was in the hospital that night where my mother died with cancer. Coincidence, eh? 
But I said, Mom, I'm going to be good for you. I know you don't know I'm sober, but I know you're watching me, and I know you're going to be real proud of me tonight. I'm going to be really good for you, Mom. You know, I really am the best. And I had trouble with this prayer, and I went out to this little retreat. This perfect prayer, and please... Let's listen to these lovely, lovely words of this perfect prayer because these apostles, these hard-working guys, you know, they had trouble praying. And they said to Jesus, in the big, big book it tells us, you know, when I pray, they said, how do you pray? He said, as I pray, pray ye likewise. Our Father that art in heaven, he's our Father, he's everybody's Father. Whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Jew, whether you're white or black or rich or poor, and isn't it sad that we that the colour of somebody it makes me so mad that the colour of somebody's get you get you prejudiced. You know, if God's black, some of us are going to get a hell of a shock. I don't, I don't get angry. I don't get angry. I was in Africa. I was in a lot of trouble there, I'll tell you. I was in a lot of trouble. And if I go back again, I'll be in a lot of trouble. Oh yeah. A lot of trouble. Ignorance. That's all it is. Fear and ignorance. God. I have a black son. Run my business while I'm here. My adopted boy, Stephen, I love him with all my heart. I have an adopted daughter, Rochelle, that's black. She's at Hamilton at McMaster's University. She's working towards a PhD. She's going to be a doctor. I love them. Prejudice. Ignorance. And we stand there. Our Father, he's everybody's. And let's please my loves be a little kinder to our brothers and sisters on this earth because we're going to have to answer to somebody. And like I say, if God's black, some others are going to be in a lot of trouble. Hallowed be his name. It means we love him. That's what hallowed means. It means love. Like you love your mum and your dad. Like you love your wife and your kids. You can argue with them. You don't want anybody else to argue with that personal private. That, that's your hallowed be their name means we love. And I'm trying to stop blaspheming. You know, tough sometimes. I want to be one of the boys when I'm with the boys. And I was, I learned to swear in the Navy, you know, five, five sentences. I mean, they really teach you how to swear. And they're all the words, but I don't need them. My, my, my vocabulary is not that small. Uh, I can express my other words. But if I'm ba banging a nail in the wall and I hit my son, I don't say, oh, that hurt me. <laughs> I say, Jesus! <laughs> and the air is blue. And then I say, sorry, Dad. Sorry, Dad. And he forgives me. Because Dad's forgives. And Mum's forgives. That's why he died on the cross. To, so we could be forgiven. Didn't die for the strong. Died for the weak. Ah, Bill C the alky. It's always getting in trouble. That's why. That's why. Sole purpose for us. Unless you're perfect. And if you're perfect, leave your car here and fly home. 
but, but please come down low enough so I can throw a brick at you, will you? <laughs> Have you met these perfect people? Aren't they a pain in the arse? <laughs> Holy gee. I'm trying to communicate. I'm sorry, Dad. <laughs> Give us this day our daily bread. We got it. We're sober. We can handle anything today, one day at a time. We're sober. Never mind about tomorrow. You said, ah, who got time to go back crying? Can handle anything, one day at a time. If that guy Bruce is here today, and I hope he is, he's five days today. I love you, Bruce. Gonna make it, kid. For sure. Good stuff. You made a good stuff, mate. Guy's a sailor. Worked on the fishing boats. Beautiful fellow. So give us this day our daily bread. I see people standing there like butter wouldn't melt in the mouth. And you hear them. I'll never forgive my brother for what he did to me during the war. I can't stand that son of a bitch over there, group. I'll never forgive what my mother, my father, my brother, my wife, my sister, my did to me. Oh, we're sensitive, aren't we? <laughs> and it tells us this. It tells us this. It says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And if you're perfect, you don't have to bother too much about that. I'll never be perfect, not in this world. I know there's another world, and I could talk for an hour about that. I really could. We live in a shell, there's a spirit there, and I could talk for an hour about this. I'm so convinced that when one door closes, as it will, that next door opens. I'm positive of this. You close your eyes and you dream and you see all kinds of visions and things and yet your eyes are shut. Very quickly, my love, that's what it's going to be like. And if you live good, it's going to be good dreams. I know this. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. If there's somebody you hate, you had better get on the phone and say, it's okay, it's all right. Maybe they're in pain. Maybe they hurt you. Maybe they did something. They're in pain. And again, you can be their dentist. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. And the power and the glory is in this room. You're the dentist that can fix this guy's or girl's pain. The power's here. A lot of power. You know, in a little while, this convention, they say, well, it's over. It's not over. It's just beginning. When we go out and carry the message from what we've learned, from the wonderful speakers we've had this weekend. You know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank Mary Ann for inviting me down here and Mike and, you know, David. I'd be remiss. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. It doesn't say till we die. It says forever and ever. Ad infinite. Forever. I believe this. I believe this with all my heart. Remember Bill from St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, as loving you very